Thank you so thank you so much, Carlene. That was really a lovely introduction. Um, thank you, and thank you, Sarah. Thank you both for making me feel so welcome here, and thank you, Jody, for inviting me. And thank all the rest of you for being here to listen. Um, can, is, this, is this working? Okay, great. Um, so I'm going to read a few pages from this book, How to Disappear. But before I do that, I just want to talk for a few minutes about how this book came into being. Um, we all live to, be, to see and to be seen. We know this. Being seen, being recognized, being acknowledged is vital to human experience. Social visibility <clears throat> is vital to our happiness and to our sen the sense we have of ourselves. And when it diminishes, we suffer. The gaze is vital to human experience. Um, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement have the power they do because it's their intent to bring lives often unrecognized and margin marginalized back into social and political visibility. Um, we all need to see and to see each other. This is the given. But even as I say this and think this, it's also with the conviction <clears throat> that the imperative to go unseen, to be inconspicuous, uh, that is to be invisible, can be just as critical. And I think this is something that we tend to lose sight of in our kind of in our age of transparency, in our increasingly visual culture, um, social media, the surveillance economy, technology companies that routinely harvest our data, facial recognition systems, and a whole host of other um, technologies and conditions that really erode our traditional notions of privacy. Um, all of these have put a kind of, um, I think, dis disproportionately high value on public identity. And visibility seems um, to me to become sort of increasingly fundamental to our ideas of who we are. Um, and so this moment really came home to me uh, a couple of years ago in a class I was teaching. Um, when a couple of cameramen came to visit my class because they were making a video for the, for the college and they wanted to film the class, so they said, you know, can we come to your class? And I said, yeah, fine, whatever, come. Um, not particularly happy about it because I thought that it would make the students feel awkward and um, kind of, um, you know, make them self-conscious. Um, so, so as soon as the video guys came in and started filming, the exact opposite happened, and my students all kind of sat up a little straighter and were, you know, kind of citing citing their sources a little more precisely and framing their arguments a little bit more clearly. And I was, you know, completely mystified. Um, I was happy about it, but it kind of blew me away. And what I realized afterwards was, you know, well, of course, I mean, these, these were kids who were filmed as they emerged from the birth canal, filmed when they took their first steps, filmed when they got onto the first school bus, and, you know, sort of every milestone of their life was documented. Um, so, of course, they felt as though um, the camera didn't simply, um, it, it's not that they were performing for the camera, but that the camera kind of um, affirmed them in some kind of way that was, that was a little bit difficult for me to grasp. Um, and when I told a fellow faculty member about this, he said, oh yeah, he said, absolutely, we should be live streaming all our classes because then, you know, who knows what would happen. Um, but I think, um, I think that kind of visibility can also be distracting. I think when identity is derived from projecting an image in the public realm, I think something is lost. Some core of identity is diluted and some sense of interiority and authority are compromised. Um, and so it seemed to me that there was another way to think about this and to imagine the unseen state not just about, not as something, not, not as being about kind of overlooked and discounted 
wanted, um, and not about complacent isolation or some kind of you know mindless conformity, but that it could, was sort of more about kind of maintaining a voice, propriety, sense of authority, just a, a kind of sense of interior self. And it made me think how in a range of other human enterprises, being unseen, being invisible, could in fact be a positive experience. Um, so that's what I wanted to look at. Uh, certainly when we're kids, in, invisibility is a route to creativity and independent thinking. Um, we learn about the evanescence of words through you know, light bulbs and lemon juice and invisible ink. Um, caps and, and hats and capes and cloaks um, are all kind of accessories to invisibility. You know, kids love to think that they're unseen because it gives them a sense of, of knowledge and power and authority. Um, and those are, you know, staples, in, you know, in children's literature. Um, invisible friends also, um, they come in all shapes and sizes and they, they serve as confidants for secrets and, and um, <clears throat> subjects of devotion, means to sort of um, delve into solitude. Um, invisible friends serve a whole, they come in all shapes and sizes and serve a variety of purposes. Um, but I wanted obviously to think about more adult iterations as well um, and not just technology, although, although there was some of that um, VR headsets that disrupt the mind-body connection um, and make us think our, our, our bodies have vanished and augmented reality glasses that propose taking us to distant environments, um, leaving, leaving our physical selves behind. Um, and certainly a lot of neuroscience is about uh, those disorders in which the brain and the body kind of detach from one another, um, enabling people, some people, to believe that the body is this um, ephemeral entity. Um, but I was actually, you know, even beyond the technology and, and the neuroscience, I was kind of more interested in just ways of being. Um, Rereading Mrs. Dalloway, I found that when Clarissa Dalloway walked down a London street, you know, she, it's the beginning of the book and she feels unseen, unobserved, unnoticed. Um, and then she sort of contemplates how sometimes it's only, only through their shoes or their gloves or their husband's names that women are known. And so she's, you know, she's talking she's kind of thinking about being invisible um, but then she also finds herself at a certain age being more empathetic um, and, and in Virginia Woolf's words um, she finds herself with the gift of knowing people by instinct and she considers how her diminished visual status doesn't so much limit her life as sustain and inform it and I found all kinds of ways in which I mean Virginia Woolf was so was such a kind of um, perceptive and prescient writer, and you know there are all kinds of ways a century later that modern social research bears this out, that people who are inconspicuous you know, are more, um, more ethical, more empathetic. Anyway, there's a lot of research about that, so that was interesting to me. Um, and then my friend Betsy Sherman, um, who's a biologist, introduced me to the invisibility of the deep blue sea off the Cayman Islands where she studies coral reefs. Um, Betsy says, when humans want to see nature, whether it's in the forest, meadow, desert, and for me especially, underwater, we try to be actively invisible so that we can better know the place. Um, when she's diving, she works in a quiet and weightless state, um, ignored completely by the invertebrates and other neon residents in the kind of aquatic bazaar around her. Um, her invisibility is not about color or shape or being hidden or being camouflaged. It's, it's much more a matter of behavior. Um, her sense of belonging has less to do with an allegiance to place than a kind of absorption by place. Um, 
and she may be doing some of the, you know some of her most important research, but the angelfish and the tortoises and the sea urchins are all completely indifferent to her presence, and that indifference is what allows her to do her research. Um, she's there and she's not there. Um, and then there is Iceland. Um, where most people still believe in the Huldafolk, which is an entirely invisible population. Uh, the Huldafolk are a kind of shadow race. They're not especially enchanted or magical. Um, they're just like human beings. They're just like us, but just a little bit better. They're, you know, their, their hair is a little bit better. Their skin's a little bit better. They look a little bit nicer. Um, their horses run faster with sleeker coats. Their cows give, you know, richer milk and cream. They're just... You know, they're just a little bit better than we are. Um, and so when you go to Iceland, you sort of, um, you find this recognition of the unseen world. Um, it's apparent both in the, in the country's geography and landscape, but also in, um, in its social interactions. You know, it's just kind of there. Um, so that was really interesting to me. So I went to Iceland because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know what it was like to kind of believe that there was this parallel universe of the unseen. So I'm going to read a short section from the um, Iceland chapter in my book and see if I can get you to be believers. Um, Glacial ice, <coughs> ice covers some 11% of the country's landmass, making for a topography of disturbance that offers ice, ice lagoons, ice streams, and ice caves just as regularly as it does scalding geysers, hot pools of mud that bubble and stream from the earth, and steaming sulfuric geothermal pools. The entire landscape appears to exist in a state of suspended animation, and even before climate change, the manner in which glaciers unfurled themselves down to the plains has a sense of immediacy to it. At Jokul Sorlan in the north, icebergs are a surprisingly tropical shade of turquoise. Some of them stippled with ash, drift from their frigid lagoon towards the black beaches in a hallucinatory pageant. How the physical environment plays a role in the ways the human psyche is formed is an unsure science, but it doesn't seem like a stretch to imagine a correlation of geography and sensibility here, or to think that Icelandic culture reflects an abiding familiarity with the unexpected and uncertain forces of an unstable earth. The association between beauty and the unseen is fully recognized here. If the geography advocates for the unknown, so too does the country's climate and light. Iceland is cloaked in shade for months on end, often further obscured by blinding snow, all of it a darkness that might or might not be alleviated by a sudden luminescent stream of the northern lights, a magenta, turquoise, and green glow streaking across the night sky. Sightlines remain ambiguous. Recalling a visit to the countryside during the winter, the poet Mark Wunderlich told me of the howling gales and two feet of snow. It was dark and you couldn't see anything. I had gone there to ride, but assumed that in these conditions we would stay indoors. But why wouldn't you ride, my friends asked me, and so we just suited up and went out. We couldn't see anything, but the horses knew where we were, and then suddenly we could see. Phantom populations in Iceland aren't limited to the shadow race of hidden people. Icelandic myth includes sea cattle able to breathe underwater, a dappled gray water horse able to vanish into the waves and take on different animal shapes and a scoffin, a fox-cat hybrid that can disappear into the earth as a worm. Stories help us make sense of place. 
The comparative isolation of any island can result in what Oliver Sacks calls geographic singularity, a kind of separateness that allows not only for the evolution of animal and plant species that can be found nowhere else, but also for systems of thinking and belief that develop with limited external influence and intrusion. Islands cultivate what is unique on this earth, all of which may be why stories of the invisible people have been absorbed so seamlessly into contemporary culture. Ole Gunnarsson, a farmer in the south, points out for me an old turf hut adjacent to his barn. Today its roof line is neatly folded into the sod beneath it, but it's generations old and was inhabited by a family of hidden people when his grandparents were alive. After a winter blizzard had damaged the hut, he tells me, the family moved into the adjacent farmhouse with his grandparents. His grandmother, inclined to enjoy a glass of sherry in the evenings, noticed the level of the sherry bottle diminishing. You'd better fix the roof on the sod house, she told her husband, so the guests will move out quickly. Her husband repaired the roof and life returned to normal. Oli laughs at the obviousness of the tale, but when I ask him if they continue to live here still, he says, yes, I think so. He believes in them, he believes in them, he tells me. I do not see them, but it's the way people believe in God, even though they cannot see him. It's a relationship of respect, he says. His daughter played with several invisible children in a rock grotto when she was three, and he points to a fissure of stone at the foot of the grassy hill behind the farm. In the afternoon, she returned to the farmhouse and her parents only when the unseen children were summoned home by their own parents. A farm woman in the north tells me that these stories are more common in the eastern part of the country where she grew up. As a child, she says, she was closer to the experience. When you're young, there's less of a difference between what you see and what you believe. But most of us here now, we still have some belief in it. We're speaking in her cottage in mid-July, and the countryside has been bathed in pale northern light for many days and nights. Illumination is unrelenting, shifting only in degrees from a soft, diffuse gray to an overcast, pearly dusk. A dense fog has settled in around the cottage, however, and I can't see a thing. Such are the conditions of visibility here. Ambiguous conversations about the unknown in Iceland are naturally reflected by what's going on outdoors. A few days later, a desk clerk at the hotel tells me that her five-year-old son plays frequently with a young Holdafolk boy. Often he wants to bring his playmate home, she tells me, but I tell him no, no. She believes her son's stories, but is not eager to have the elusive playmate in the house. This is just something we live with, she tells me. She lives on a farm with her husband, and there are rock castles where the hidden people live on the hill behind her house. If she speaks, I look out at the window at the hill, scattered with gray stones, and ask her how she's able to identify those that serve as residences for the unseen. It's just the composition of the stones, she tells me. Sometimes you'll see a larger one, arranged just so with a smaller one. They just stand there together. It's not unlike the way we build things ourselves. The tone with which she tells me this is beginning to become familiar to me, a combination of practical accommodation and pure ancient belief. Later that morning, I drive to another hillside where the Haldefolk are said to converge. It's an ordinary hill strewn with stones, sheathed in moss and grass. No other markers designated as a place of any significance. Adalger, a sheep farmer in the north, well into his 80s now, tells me through a translator about an encounter he had as a 12-year-old boy. He was near a rock and met a woman dressed in blue. 
She was friendly but did not speak to him. It never happened again. But many farms here have such rocks. It's part of ordinary life here. He gestures vaguely up the hill where the animals are grazing. His son, who has taken over the operation of the farm and speaks English, tells me he grew up knowing about the rock. But really, he says, that is all. When the rocks of the Haldafolk are relocated, it's done with respect and restraint. In the village of <clears throat> Bredesalvik is something called the Power Rock, transferred there from a nearby ravine by a local hotel proprietor for use at a strongman competition. Identifying himself as a psychic, the proprietor had asked the Haldafolk living near the 22,000-pound stone for their permission to move it. They agreed, apparently, with the condition that the stone be used for its healing power alone. The eventual transport involved a lightning storm, apparitions, the glow of candlelight. Simultaneously weird and ordinary, the massive rock is now a village landmark and sits in the middle of town next to a picnic table where tourists can eat their sandwiches. A small sign encourages them to absorb the rock's healing power through touch. Of course, I touch the rock. In astrophysics, invisibility is sometimes used as a placeholder a stand-in for unidentified knowledge. Physicists know that the information is there, but not knowing just what it is, think around it. Dark energy is a placeholder. Dark matter is a placeholder that neither absorbs nor radiates light. There is no meaningful analogy for explaining how the universe is expanding. There is no metaphor for its edges that is applicable. We don't have the information for this, and so they remain as placeholders for the unknowable, and scientists think around them. The invisible world is a place in which the human imagination has not yet found a clear path. So we use a chunk of rock or inert piece of lava, some fissure in the ground, some dark space or object that's reserved for the inconceivable, and then we think around them which is likely why to this day I carry in my coat pocket a little round black volcanic stone no more than an inch in diameter, which I picked up on a beach near this town, a souvenir of the dark energy of which I have some knowledge but no comprehension. A few days later, I find myself in the fishing village of Bacajerdi. Tucked into, the far, <coughs> tucked into the far end of one of the country's eastern fjords, it's a remote fishing and sheep farming village. Gemstones are churned out of the earth on a regular basis, and the gift shop there offers bins of jasper, agate, and other assorted kinds of quartz. The village is known even more for its legends of the Haldafolk. A small white farmhouse at the edge of town is believed to have been the residence of a woman who lived among both humans and the hidden people, and local folklore describes her manner of negotiating life and marriage in these two separate realms. Other stories suggest the kind of economy that villagers enter into with the hidden people. Exchanges between the seen and unseen worlds that involve the transfer of goods and services. Good fortune given in return for a pitcher of buttermilk or a prize you offered for the assurance of safety in a snowstorm. Themes of equitability in a, in a harsh and inequitable world remain consistent. Set back from the town center is a rocky outcropping known as Alphaborg, believed by many to be a city of hidden people as well as the home of its queen. I climb to the rock summit along a path that is strewn with buttercup, wild geranium, wild thyme, moss, lichen. The elevation of the rock is slight, not more than 50 or 60 feet, and confers on visitors a sense of removal, but just barely. 
To the east is the edge of the harbor and to the north and south towering snow-capped mountains. It's one of those places where one can feel both connected and disconnected. A community of shadow presences is said to exist here, and that may be so, but it's also one of those geographic features that generate a sense of affinity. The position of the rock in its little valley and its slight elevation make for a configuration of comfort, an order, a symmetry, a sense of belonging. It's easy to understand why residents of the village see it as so central to their lives. Celtic tradition holds that the Earth's geography contains thin places. Heaven and Earth are only three feet apart, the adage goes, but in such liminal zones, the distance is even less. Thin places are thought to be those areas where the temporal and spiritual converge, where the invisible and visible worlds coalesce. It could be a mountain or a river, some geographic axis, some threshold of rock, earth, or water, some pleat in the river or fold in the land that has the capacity to advance human spirit. It might be a place that becomes the site for a temple or monastery or shrine, but it could just as well be snow settling on a frozen lake, an eclipsed sky, an unexpected conversation. Thin places refer not simply to geographic features, but to how these allow people spatial, spatial and psychic realignment. This small rise of stone framed by mountains and the harbor to the east seems to qualify as just such a place. Not far away is a small hill where a large volcanic boulder is surrounded by many smaller stones. Local lore has it that the area serves as a crossroad for the invisible population. And later that afternoon, I meet a school teacher in the village who speaks with a distinct prag pragmatism when she tells me of taking her students there from time to time. She gives me directions to the field of stones and with her pen traces the road there and circles it on my map. Who knows, she says, shrugging. There are so many things we cannot see. Thank you.